0: Last week, we just really had an amazing time in Acts. We had um, Paul just giving his heart out of You know, he's just giving his heart away. We talked about discipleship being in close proximity. And, and this is sort of the ongoing story of Paul's uh, kind of last run before he goes to Rome. Uh, and now he senses he's got to go to Jerusalem. And what I'm going to do tonight, I'm just going to read the, the chapter I'm in the message, and it's Acts 21, and then we're going to go back and kind of just break up some pieces of the scripture that we're going to read. And so let's just read. And so with the tearful goodbyes behind us, we were on our way. We made a straight run to Kos, and The next day, we reached Rhodes, and then to Patara. And then we found a ship going uh, direct to Phoenicia. Got on board and set sail. Cyprus came into view on our left, but it was soon out of sight as we kept on course for Syria. And eventually docked at the port of Tyre. While the cargo was being unloaded, we looked up the local disciples. We looked up the local disciples and stayed with them seven days. Their message to Paul: Now underline this, highlight this. From insight given by the Spirit was don't go to Jerusalem okay keep that in the back of your mind when our time was up they escorted us out of the city to the docks everyone came along men women and children they made a farewell party of the occasion we all kneeled together on the beach and prayed then after another round of saying goodbye we climbed on the board climbed on board the ship while they drifted back to their homes a short run from Tyre to Ptolemy completed the vid- village, uh, voyage we greeted our Christian friends there and stayed with them a day. In the morning, we went on to Caesarea and stayed with Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. Philip had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Underline that, highlight who prophesied. After several days of visiting, a, prof- a prophet from Judea by the name of Agabus uh, came down to see us. He, was, he, was, he went right up to Paul took Paul's belt and, in a dramatic gesture, tied himself up, hands and feet, and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. Underline that. This is what the Holy Spirit says. The Jews in Jerusalem are going to tie the man up who owns this belt just like this and hand him over to godless unbelievers. When we heard that, we and everyone there that day begged Paul not to be stubborn and persist in going to Jerusalem. But Paul wouldn't budge. Why all this hysteria? Why do you insist on making a scene and making it even harder for me? You're looking at this backwards. The issue in Jerusalem is not what they do to me, whether arrest or murder, but what the master Jesus does through my obedience. Can you see that? I want you to highlight that or underline that. What the master Jesus does through my obedience We saw that we weren't making even a dent in his resolve and gave up. It's funny that Luke was in on this because he said we. That's really cool, isn't it? All right. It's uh, in God's hands now. And we said, Master, you handle it. It wasn't long before we had our luggage t- together and were on our way to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and took us to the home of Nason, who received us warmly as his guests. A native of Cyprus, he had uh, been among the earliest disciples. In Jerusalem, our friends, glad to see us, received us with open arms. The first thing next morning, we took Paul to see James. Remember James, Pastor James. All the church leaders were there. After a time of greeting and small talk, Paul told the story detail by detail of what God had done among the non-Jewish people throughout his ministry. They listened with delight and gave God the glory. They had a story to tell too. And just look at what's been happening here. Thousands upon thousands of God-fearing Jews had become believers in Jesus. But there's also a problem, because they they are more zealous than ever in observing the laws of Moses. They have been told—now, I'm going to get so ahead of myself. They have been told that you advise believing Jews who uh, who live surrounded by unbelieving outsiders to go light on Moses, telling them that they don't need to circumcise their children or keep up the old traditions, and this isn't sitting well with them at all. We were worried about what will happen when they discover you're in town— There's bound to be trouble. So here's what we want you to do. There are four men from our company who have taken a vow involving ritual purification, but have no money to pay the expenses. Join these men in their vows and pay their expenses. Then it will become obvious to everyone that there is nothing to the rumors going around about you and that you are in fact scrupulous in your reverence for the laws of Moses. In asking you to do this, we're not going back on our agreement regarding non-Jews who become believers. We continue to hold fast to what we wrote in that letter, namely, be careful not to get involved in activities connected with idols and avoid serving food offensive to Jewish Christians and the guard the morality of sex and marriage. So Paul did it, took the men, joined them in their vows, and paid their way. The next day he went to the temple to make, the, make it official and stay there until the proper sacrifices had been offered and completed for each of them. When the seven days of purification were nearly up, some Jews from around Ephesus spotted him in the temple. At once they turned the place upside down. They grabbed Paul and started yelling at the top of their lungs, Help, you Israelites, help! This is the man who is going all over the world telling lies against us and our religion and this place. Underline that. Our religion and this place. He's even brought Greeks in here, God forbid, and defiled this holy place. What had happened was that they had seen Paul with one of the dudes from. Hang on, they had seen Paul and Trophimus and the Ephesian Greek walking together in the city, and had just assumed that he had taken him to the temple as well and shown him around. Isn't that funny? I love this. This how it's like a story. Just it's amazing. Anyway. Soon, the whole city was in an uproar, people running from everywhere to the temple to get in the action. They grabbed Paul, dragged him outside, and locked the temple gates so he couldn't get back out and gain sanctuary. As they were trying to kill him, the word came over the captain of the guard, a riot! The whole city's boiling over! He acted swiftly. His soldiers and centurions ran to the scene at once. As soon as the mob saw the captain and his soldiers, they quit beating Paul. The captain came up and put Paul under arrest. Isn't that crazy? Here's a guy getting the crap kicked out of him, and he's the one who gets under arrest. Weird. He first ordered him handcuffed and then went and then asked who he was and what he had done. All he got from the crowd were shouts, one yelling this, another that. It was impossible to tell one word from another in the mob hysteria. So the captain ordered Paul taken to the military barracks. But when they got to the temple steps, the mob became so violent, the soldiers had to carry Paul. As they carried him away, the crowd followed shouting, kill him, kill him. When they got to the barracks, they were about to go in. Paul said to the captain, Can I say something to you? He answered, Oh, I didn't know you spoke Greek. I thought you were the Egyptian who not long ago started a riot here and then hid out in the desert with his 4,000 thugs. Paul said, No, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus. I'm a citizen still of that influential city. I have a simple request. Let me speak to the crowd. Standing on the barracks steps, Paul turned and held his arms up. A hush fell over the crowd as Paul began to speak. And he spoke in Hebrew. Long chapter, a lot of good stuff in here. Just want to jump back through uh, verses one through four. We see that Paul starts to get these prophetic warnings about going to Jerusalem. It's the first warning that Paul receives about not going to Jerusalem. Luke even records this prophecy as by the Spirit. So this wasn't some, you know, weird person out of whack and out of tune and out of listening ear with the Holy Spirit. This was a person. This the person that's prophesying is a person who is hearing from the Spirit. In other words, the prophecy is true. It's right. It's it's right on the mark. Um, it's 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 not uh, you know like they're they're operating out of their flesh even. Paul made a point to say this guy is operating in the Spirit. We're going to see. In this chapter, the words of prophecy that are featured, and there's at least three uh, references connected to these words of prophecies, and that really means something in just a minute. I'm going to unpack this a little bit. We see the next section. This is the second scene where we see prophecy being exercised. We can assume at best that since the Bible doesn't tell us what the seven daughters prophesied, that it followed in the same vein as the disciples' prophecy. So the first prophecy from the disciple was, please don't go to Jerusalem. Bad things are going to happen to you. The second prophecy was the the, the daughters, the four virgins from Philip, who was saying, They didn't say what they said, but because the Bible doesn't contradict the first prophecy, we can at best assume that that prophecy was saying the same thing. Man, don't go. Don't go to Jerusalem. If there's bad news there, it's not going to be good for you. In other words, there's no indication that the virgin's prophetic words contradicted what was previously stated. The next section. Do you guys remember Agabus? But what, anybody remember what he did early in the book of Acts? It's mentioned twice. He's the guy who prophesied that there will be a great famine in the land. you guys remember that early in the book? So Agabus, even by church fathers, uh, read all about him this week. And all these church fathers and church historians and scholars said that there was one solid prophet. It was Agabus. This guy never missed it. He was never off. He just heard from the Spirit, and he gave what the Spirit told him to say— that's the beautiful thing about prophecy. If you're hearing from the Spirit, and you're walking in that boldness, you have the freedom to then say what you feel like the Holy Spirit is saying. Agabus is bold in his in his prophetic word, right? He takes Paul's belt off. Paul's thinking, what are you doing, man? You know, my, my cloak's going to fall off. And then he binds his own hands, and he binds his own feet. And the picture here is sort of that, that hands to, to ankles. To, I don't know how he tied his own hands to his feet, but... I mean, he was pretty cool, so I guess he did it. But it, it's a picture of a, a, a sense of helplessness, a sense of very, being very vulnerable, uh, being tied up as a slave by your hands being bound to your ankles. And so Agabus comes over, and it says, he says the same thing. Now, this is the third time that we see this prophetic word used to warn Paul. Why is three so important? We see a trend, right? We see the first prophecy given, it's the word, don't go to Jerusalem. The second prophecy given, we can assume that's saying the same thing. The third prophecy given, Agabus, is saying the same thing. Isn't that fascinating? It's like hit me over the head this week. I can, I can tell you today because even back in the Old Testament, you couldn't accuse someone of anything without two or three witnesses, right? Numbers says it, Deuteronomy says it, 2 Corinthians 13 says it, Matthew 18 says it. Matthew 18 says, Look, let your yes be yes and your no be no. This is so powerful. Jesus actually said, Make sure you listen to me when I say this. Where two or three of you are gathered in my name, you can rest assured that I am there with you. There's power in agreement. There's power in the Holy Spirit saying, this is a picture of my Trinity. This is a picture of me, the Son, and the Father operating in beautiful harmony. There's power in agreement. The Hebrews would have noticed this trend immediately. They would have noticed. They would have noticed the, the they would have remembered Numbers. They would have remembered Deuteronomy. They would have remembered the prophets. They would have remembered the law that says you can't accuse someone on your own. You must have a witness or two to verify what's going on. Is this connecting with you? When we approach the throne of God, we got to have two or three witnesses that agree. And that power of agreement, Jesus says, I will be with, rest assured, I will be with you when two or three of you are gathered in agreement. That's why the church is so fractured. The enemy knows if I can just fracture them, if I can get them to disagree, if I can get them out of unity, if I can get them out of trust with one another, they're not going to be able to accomplish anything. But my God, if they get together and they're in unity, there is nothing that can stop them. It's kind of cool because even God said that, right? In the Old Testament, there's all these guys that had one mind. They were going to build a tower, and we're going to reach heaven. And God says, if they have one mind, there is nothing, nothing too hard for them. There's nothing that can stop them. Man, we need to take that to heart. Just as keystoners tonight, we need to take that to heart. We need to say, when I allow offense to come in my heart, I'm going to say, no, this is a trick. It's a trap. I'm not going for it. I'm staying in unity. When I disagree with a leader, I'm going to say, no, it's a trick. It's a trap. I'm staying in unity. I can't afford not to. Deuteronomy 17:6 is the verse that we refer to in the Old Testament. Listen to this. Jesus said this. Take this most seriously. Now, when Jesus, God in flesh, says, I want you to take this seriously, you know what we should probably do? We should take it seriously. Matthew 18, verse 16, uh, verse 18. Verse 18. A yes on earth is a yes in heaven. Come on. A no on earth is a no in heaven. Now, if you're in a little app or something, highlight this. What you say to one another is eternal. Yeah. Now, it doesn't say that, that, that whatever we say to each other ends at our lifetimes. It doesn't say that whenever you get healed, that word just ends. It doesn't say that whenever you're done with your trial, that word that I spoke to you of encouragement ends. What we say to one another is eternal. Yeah. Now, number one, that should really help us measure what we say to one another, right? Right. I mean, that's a conviction point for me. I'm a pretty good coarse jester, and I hate it about myself. I hate it. And every time I do, I'm like, ooh, there it is again. Ooh, there it is again. So we should be, we should be very cautious about what we say to one another. Number two, we should be uplifting and encouraging. And there's, there's a mystery here, bro. There's a mystery here. It's something happens in eternity about what we say today. Our words have amazing power. Let your yes be yes and you know what you say to one another is eternal. And he says, I mean this. When two of you get together on anything at all. Say anything at all. Anything at all. On earth and make a prayer of it. My Father in heaven goes into action. And when two or three of you are together because of me, you can be sure that I'll be there. I mean, this is God in flesh. In flesh telling his boys. Fellas, I got a huge, huge revelation for you. Remember all that stuff we talked about in the Old Testament about, you know, two or three witnesses? Well, this is what it's culminating to. The whole purpose for me to say that in the Old Testament, not so you could accuse somebody of murder, was so that you could understand that there is incredible power in unity. And when we agree on a thing, listen, I'm just going to choose to believe this, that our Father in heaven goes to action. Something happened with Anthony in that hospital room. It's a mystery. I don't even know if we're praying right. I don't know if we can send angels. I think I read that somewhere in Psalms that they hearken unto the voice of the word of God, right? Who's the voice of the word of God? Me! You guys, we have so much authority in unity. I think sometimes we want to fracture that and say, well, he, he's this title, he's that title, she's that title, that's her gifting. And so we, we segregate through titles and giftings. And Jesus is saying, man, guys, if you just understood, an evangelist can get along with a teacher just fine. I promise me they can. I proved it with my boys. Is this helping? Because we have this three, because we have witnesses, because we see a pattern of this three, it helps us in many ways. Number one, it helps us understand the scripture in context. When you have, when you're bearing witness with several scriptures, it helps you understand that scripture in context. We are so guilty of taking scripture out of context. We have justified war. We have justified famine. We have justified slavery because we completely take Scripture out of context. When you have one or two or three Scripture verses, Scripture proclamations that state the same thing and in context can support an idea, you can rest on that. But when you take one verse out of context and you build a theology around it, you are so jacked up, and that's why we have what we have today. Separation in the body. We have disagreements so deep that it causes us to just start another denomination. But we still call ourselves Christians. It's insane. Think about it. It's insane. I grew up Baptist, as most of you know and uh, and I'm, I'm glad for my background. I never want to discount that. And I went from Baptist to, like, independent fundamental Baptist. And I kind of do regret that. But anyway, let's move on. I, when I found out about Baptist, man, there's more Baptists. We could never remember how many Baptists there were. The funniest one to me was regular Baptist. Have you ever heard of regular Baptist? They have their own printing press. Yeah, regular Baptist. I'm like, what's an irregular Baptist? Right? <laughs> they got a regular Baptist, got an irregular Baptist, a missionary Baptist, missionary alliance Baptist, Holy Ghost is seceded Baptist. I mean, there's all these crazy denominations, and they're based upon one context or one verse that they've taken completely out of context. It's, it's crazy. And This is funny. You have Southern Baptist in the West. Figure that one out. Second Baptist Church, yes. All right, right on. Second Baptist. My point is this, when we when we start to divide the scripture based upon our own lens of experience or 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 what we really want to see, we can justify anything through scripture. We really can. And, and Jesus is saying throughout the whole scripture, in unity, let it build on one another. Let the concepts and the principles of who I am as God come through truth. When you build it together, when you put the Old Testament and the New Testament and the Prophets and the Psalms and you put them all together, now you've got a good picture of who I am. Number two, this context, this three, this unity helps us understand Prophecy. In uh, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 1, Paul said this. Well, this is my third visit. Interesting, isn't it? This is my third visit coming up. Remember, the scripture says, a matter becomes clear after two or three witnesses give evidence. So the second thing that this does, it helps us understand prophecy. Understanding prophecy can be really tricky, whether you're the prophetic or you're the one receiving And I think that it's really important for us as we begin to walk into this vein of prophetic anointing and we begin to exercise the gifts of a prophet that we we make sure as a receiver that number one, it resonates with you. Number two, this person isn't seeing something so sideways that you can't even imagine where they're coming from. And it lines up with scripture. It doesn't have to quote scripture, but it's got to at least line up with it. This is where we get off the reservation. People prophesy whack job things, ruin people's lives. They can never recover because they listen to one person. Let me let me encourage you tonight. When you hear a prophetic word, just wait a minute. Let's see if it resonates with another prophet. Let's see if someone else is getting the same thing. Let's see if your life is resonating with it. Let's see if there are two or three witnesses that can bear witness to that prophetic word. Listen, that's prophecy, guys. That's the office of a prophet, and that's done in health. That's done righteously. That's done with, with proper order. How many times have you been prophesied over, and you're like, I never thought I'd be a lion tamer in Africa, but okay. (laughs) I gotta find a whip, right? I, Teresa and I, and I personally know we haven't. I don't personally know them. I knew them. Teresa knew this family years and years ago. Got a prophetic word. You guys are supposed to be missionaries in Africa. You know what they did? They sold everything, and they moved to Africa. Didn't have any visas. Didn't have any language. Didn't have any context. Didn't have any money. They heard one prophetic word, and people were like, oh, I just love your obedience. Brother, sister, you guys just go, and Jesus will take care of you. I mean, dummy, wait. Wait for another word. Wait for another word. Give it context, and give it time. And then you know what they did? They had to come back home broken. No job. No home no money, and start all over. It just wasn't a wrong word. It might have been the wrong time. I mean, even Paul understood this. Okay, this is my third time coming, boys. My third time telling you the same thing. My third time, I'm the witness coming over and over and over again, giving you context. The message hasn't changed. This is good. And we need to be very, very educated in this. I want want us to grow up in this. Come on, somebody. I want us to grow up in this. What I mean is to be mature in it. That when you begin to prophesy, and I really want to see this gift released in our, in our body. I really want to see us operating this correctly. Because Paul says, man, I'm glad you speak in tongues, but I'd rather you prophesy. I'd rather you encourage the body. I'd rather you do that. And so we need to be in unity to do that. <clears throat> Number three. This is the third thing that prophecy in this model helps us. It's to model unity and continuity in what we are hearing. The spirit is subject to the spirit of the prophet. In other words, the spirit isn't going to force himself on a person that's not either ready to hear a word. Sometimes you prophets in the house, you'll know I'm not supposed to give that word yet. You know why? Because the spirit is subject to you. That's good, isn't it? And so we don't have to get weird in this thing. And now, now what I believe is, is like we can be patient in it. We can be, we can take our time in it. There's been a weird like, if I don't say this right now, you're going to go to hell and burn forever. I'm like, you know, chill out. Don't think you're going to go to hell. Okay, what I want to, what I to get across to you tonight is as a prophet, I want to make sure that my words are rightly measured that first of all, it resonates with something I already see in you? You know, when we ordained David and Catherine, it was no surprise. They were already operating in a pastoral role. And it was not just me that recognized it. The elders recognized it. The church recognized it. They are starting to see, you see how that in context, and we prophetically proclaimed over them the office of pastors, and they're going to operate in that, and that authority. But it wasn't something like, hey, here's a title. Have fun with that. Go get your teeth kicked in. It was confirmed by the context of the body. Does that make sense? The fourth thing that this model helps us do is to remind us that there is power in the prayer of unity. To remind us that there is power in the prayer of unity. My friends, I think that Haley said this tonight in prayer. She's like, you know, I stopped asking because you told me you were a healer, but I haven't seen you operate as a, as a healer. And so I just stopped asking. And I think in context, maybe Jesus was saying the same thing. You don't have because you don't ask or you get, you get discouraged and you get frustrated. And all God is saying is, if you'll just come together and agree with someone and know what that and understand what unity means, what agreement means, understand what that means in your life, there is power in that. Again, it's a mystery. I don't get it all, but there's power in unity. Now, the reason I wanted you guys to highlight or underline those three things is because um, prophecy, all, by the way, all three prophecies were correct. Nobody, nobody, was, nobody was off, right? But it didn't deter Paul. Paul. Do you find that odd? I mean, it's three legitimate prophets and prophecies. Number one, the disciples. Number two, the the, the four virgins. Number three, agabus. I mean, if you want a, a frosting on the cake, you get agabus. And Paul decides that those could have been true, and what they were hearing was from the Spirit and in the spirit, and they were truth, and they weren't lies. They were not off. But Paul was saying, I still have to go. Guys, if you could remember something tonight, remember this. Personal prophecy does not determine primary directive. Personal prophecy does not determine primary directive. All right, let me unpack that a little bit. So Paul could have been, Paul knew in Acts chapter 3, Ananias or 4, Ananias 11, whatever. Ananias said, I have to show him how much he will suffer for my sake. Paul's primary directive in his life was to minister to the Gentiles. Obviously, he ministered to thousands of Jews. But it was so that he, in his suffering, he could get his way and show others the way to Jesus through suffering. Amen, Milo. Personal prophecy doesn't determine primary directive. It didn't deter him from his original goal to go to Jerusalem. Does that make sense? It doesn't mean the prophecies were wrong, but Paul knew, and that's why he said, "You got this all backwards. You think that you think you can deter me. What you're saying is true, but I kind of already know that. I already know. I already know my primary directive is to suffer for Jesus. This doesn't mean that anybody had it wrong. It simply means that they were right. Paul must have had the words. You must suffer for my sake. Listen to my friends, measure the prophetic words that you receive. Okay? Measure the prophetic words that you receive. Do they line up with your initial directive? Because so easily, Paul could have said, you know what, I'm tired of getting beat up. And it is cool here. I like this town. It's a port town. I can make some money making tents. People come and go. There's a lot of trade here. I can load the ships up. I can see the ships go. He could have easily listened to the prophetic words. But he didn't. Paul knew his time was coming to an end and was drawn back to his hometown to give the Jews one more shot. What is seen here by some as stubbornness, actually some of the disciples said, dude, you're so freaking stubborn. Now, now I want to I say something. Just because Someone does something in the Bible or says something in the Bible doesn't make it right. I know. Shock. (laughs) Let me unwrap that for you. Remember Paul and Barnabas? Barnabas' name? I think you unpacked that for us, Harlan. His name was Encouragement. He was an amazing dude. I mean, who wouldn't want to be around an encourager? Give somebody a second shot. Give somebody. And Paul, we could see his stubbornness go, I refuse to travel with that guy. I don't think what Paul did was right. All it was doing was simply recording his actions. Are you, are you tracking with me? It's a, he's just recording his actions. It's not saying that when you disagree with somebody, you just split. But that's what we take from that. Oh, I, we can't walk together, man. We don't see eye to eye. So I can't be with you. No, what Paul's action could have been, you know what, let's give him another shot. Let's give John Mark another shot. I like this guy. Let's give him another shot. Now see, Paul did and sometimes did operate in stubbornness. (laughs) We got to remember, these were still humans. They were still sinners. They still made bad decisions. Sometimes I think we elevate Paul above Jesus. Let me say this to you. What may be seen by some as stubbornness can be someone simply being obedient to their life directive. What might be seen by some as stubbornness or not willing to budge or not willing to change. And I don't know. I mean, obviously, these guys were a a little offended. Fine, Paul. We're turning you over to the master. You take care of him. We're done. We love this guy, but geez. Nobody can say anything to him. Nobody can talk to him. Nobody can change his mind. As someone who knew, I'm on a directive from the Father. My Master told me to do this. I've got to do it. We jumped out of the next section. It's kind of kind of cool. We're in 17 through 19 to hear that Paul uh, was taken to Pastor James. Remember, Pastor James, I thus judge. Right? He's the man. Even Paul submitted to his counsel. Paul submitted to his authority. I love that. They give him this plan. It's crazy. This was cool. Paul then, again, submits to the plan of Pastor James. It's so funny to me. He doesn't listen to the prophetic words like, you're going to die, dude. Right? No, I'm not listening to that. He listens to the prophetic word of James, though. Shave your head. Go do some stuff. And by the way, Paul, pay for those other guys because they don't have any money. I mean, you th- think about it. Wait a minute. I'm the guest here. I'm the one traveling. You should honor me. How many times have we heard that? And then in reality, Pastor James, through the Holy Spirit, says, you know what you need to do? Shave your head. Show them that you're not, you're not dismissing the law, but you actually still support it in the fact that it still points us to Jesus. So Paul shaves his head, does the ritual, and pays for the other guy's sacrifices. I love this because he sees such a huge contrast. I think if, if, I don't know, if James were to tell him, you know, dude, you need to go walk on water. Okay. I think he respected James that much. It wasn't the lack of respect of Agabus or the disciples of the four virgins. I think he knew they were right on. It just didn't deter him from his life mission. And you'll notice this in Paul's life. If a prophetic word came or was given and it lined up with what he knew he was supposed to do, he'd grab it. He had no problem shaving his head. There was no pride in him. He wasn't being stubborn, but it didn't affect his primary mission. If, I, I imagine this. If James were to say, Paul, you need to leave and go to Africa, Paul would say, James, you're missing it on this one, bro. I'm supposed to be here. I'm supposed to suffer and tell the Jews about Jesus and our Messiah and, our, and, and the good news of the gospel. Listen, my friends, a, prof- a prophetic word doesn't deter your primary mission, listen to it. Submit to it. In context, get, get uh, some witnesses to that. Does that bear witness with you? Hey, so-and-so told me this. Does that bear witness with you? Of course, man, I see that in you. Yes, that bears witness with me. All right, cool. There's safety in a multitude of counselors. I love this, you guys. It wasn't a compromise for Paul, it was wisdom. And it's cool that James, being the authority over the city, knew what would work. This will be this will work for you, bro. Trust me. Shave your head do the ceremony. That way everybody knows, hey, I still get it. I'm still a Jew. I understand. I'm not telling people to to just walk away from all of Moses, which is an interesting fact all in itself. He's not saying, hey, obliterate the law. He's like, I get it, guys. We're Jews. I understand it. We're going to get circumcised. We're not going to eat pigs. We're, you know, we're going to do stuff, but, but there's another step we need to take. It's the bonus. Catherine said the bonus level. All right, let me wrap this up. You guys know the story goes, he gets beat up again, shock. Prophecy comes true, basically. Agabus says that you're going to be turned over, the Jews are going to turn you over to the, the enemy, and they did. His hands were bound, and he was in the position of a slave. They carried him away, saying, Kill him, kill him. Actually, they said, away with him, kill him, kill him. What does that sound eerily like? Yeah, crucify him, crucify him. Where did it take place? Same place. Write this down, tweet it, whatever. You don't have to tweet it, unless you want to. The gospel will always rebut and offend religion. The gospel will always rebut and offend religion. It's the same place Jesus was saying the same things. He was at the temple, the place of religion, the high place. But the gospel will always refute or rebut or offend religion. It's so funny to me, as we go back a little bit, James is telling the story of thousands and thousands of Jews that have turned to Jesus, right? Who were the ones binding Paul? The Christians. I thought initially that it was another crowd of Jews. And as I read it clearer and, and more concise and closer to Scripture, it's actually the same people that James just said were converted. They still had the religious spirit inside of them. It just goes to show you, my friends, that there are a lot of Christians, and I don't believe their conversion is not real, they still carry religious spirits all in them. And as soon as someone reads something like the gospel, they get offended, they start another tribe, they go to a different church, they don't want to talk to you anymore, you're not part of their family. That's why unity and diversity has to be more than just a slogan on our website. It has to be practiced and walked out and ugly and disagreed upon and argued and, and laughed and then hugged and kissed afterwards. I heard a story um, um, this, this week. A um, very conservative pastor decided to read uh, the gospel or his text from the Message Bible. And uh, because he said, wow, I've really never read the Message Bible before. And it's kind of fun to see how it puts it in our modern language. And um, it's actually a story from Alan Hirsch. So Alan's continued the story, and he says when, when uh, the church read it, there were several people that stood up, this is a true story, and said, this is BS, said the word, I am so sick of this liberal crap. <laughs> and he was reading the gospel. It was just in a language that we don't glaze over, the these and the thous and the who's this, and the and the who's, were all gone. And when you take all the vethas out, it puts it into your lap going, oh my gosh, wow, I, Jesus, you're radical. You, you sound like a socialist. You sound like you're, you're for everybody. I don't know what to do with that. And so our first reaction is even believers, when confronted with the truth of the gospel, go and detach and go across that bridge that they're so used to of religion. That's not the authorized King James Version. That's not the Bible Paul used. Think about it. (laughs) You guys, this is so good. So if we got some takeaways today, I think the first one would be prophecy does not determine your life directive. If it doesn't line up with that life directive. Now, sometimes prophecy can help enhance it. It can hone it. It can, you know, kind of shave off the rough edges. And that's good. And you need to listen to that. And the second thing I want you to really hear tonight is make sure that you are getting it in context. If you get a prophetic word, say, Pastor, does this line up with you? Because Josh told me this. That's perfectly. Yeah, I I totally see that in you. Dan, does this line up with you, Dan? Because this is exactly what Josh told me. I see it too. It lines up with me. You see what I mean? So it's not like you're going around trying to get everybody to get on your side. You're saying, this is what he said. I'm struggling through it. Do you see that in me? And if it doesn't get context, just wait. It doesn't do any harm, you guys, to wait. Jesus is in the waiting, right? We just, we just, we just, we just just sang it. He's in the waiting. We call that liminal space here. We could rename that song, Haley... Jesus is in the hallway when you're going nowhere and hallways are useless. It's a terrible song. song. No. You want to go in the party room, but you can't. Lost your key. Underage. I don't Jesus is in liminal space. He's in the deserts. He's in the the dry places, man. So second thing is get context. Thirdly, um, Sorry, guys. Uh, paper, right? The gospel, if, you, if you're preaching the gospel correctly, rest assured you will offend a religious spirit. It's, I, I, matter of fact, I say, I will promise you, you will. I promise you, you will offend religious spirits. Promise. Be ready. Okay. You want to tie me up, beat me up, throw me out, kill me? Uh, all right. This is my directive, it's my life directive. And so I can't be deterred from it.